It's a gracious act on the part of God that He reveals Himself to us in words. And so when we read God's Word, we learn truth about ourselves, we learn truth about God, and we learn about our deepest needs. And so as we read God's Word, let's note that as we listen to God's holy and inerrant Word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time and the service that we have to return to you what you have given to us, uh, to give you these tithes, these gifts, and these offerings, and to ask that you would use them, that you would use them mightily in your kingdom, in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world, and in order that the wonderful good news and the hope of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath the teaching and preaching of your word, we ask that you in your mercy would speak to us and that you would give us grace that we might be able to hear. And Father, remind us as we sit beneath your word that however we come this morning, whether we be anxious or hurting or bitter or comfortable or hopeful or despairing, that beneath it all we're really all the same because all of us are truthfully far more broken far more fallen, far more sinful than we could ever imagine about ourselves. And yet our hope 
And our need this morning is to hear the good news that because of Jesus and His person and work, we are also far more loved and far more secure and far more accepted than we could have ever dared hope to dream. And so we pray that you would proclaim this good news to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please be seated. Children ages 3 to 6 are dismissed to Children's Church. So if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to Children's Church. Well, this morning is our, um, is our last sermon on uh, our summer series. And so if you're just joining us this morning, we'll be starting a new series soon. But this morning we're wrapping up a series on Isaiah, on the latter part uh, of Isaiah's book. And we've been basically, we've been studying and looking at Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus is this mysterious servant that Isaiah was prophesying about. And it's Jesus who is the source we've been seeing of all our hope. And as we close this series this morning, I I want you to see in Isaiah 61 that we're being promised the deepest hopes and longings of our hearts here. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned the author Joseph Epstein, uh, who many consider to be uh, the greatest essayist today writing in English. And, um, here's what, but here's what Joseph Epstein uh, wrote about his own writing. He wrote this, As for my own opinion of my quality as an essayist, it is simple enough and comes down to the feeling that I could have done a lot better. He goes on, Paul Valery, who said so many smart things about writing, claimed that he never finished a poem. He merely abandoned it. By which he meant that even after long labor, he could not discover ways to make the poem as good as he hoped it might be. So it is for every writer who values craft and thinks the badge of craftsman, even with its artisanal ring, among the highest of compliments. So in other words, he's saying there's this frustrated inability, right, to capture much of what he envisions, right, the ideal, so that his works are always feeling a bit unfinished and maybe even merely abandoned. Uh, Tolkien, the author Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and a bunch of other things, once wrote the short story, maybe some of you have read it before, it's called Leaf by Niggle. And the story he tells and this little short story is about this man named Niggle, who was a painter, and, but as Tolkien writes, he was not a very successful one. Um, and he, Tolkien wrote, he was the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf trying to catch its shape and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges, yet he wanted to paint a whole tree. And so Niggle, he had this vision of this beautiful countryside with this one big tree right in the middle of it that he spent his whole life trying to paint, and he's working on this huge mural. But in the end, Niggle died in this story, and his life's work was left unfinished and, and abandoned. And so after his death, Niggle was on this train being taken to heaven, and I can't get into all that. But, um, but anyway, at one point, the train stopped, right? 
and it stopped, and there's this beautiful countryside out the window. And so Nigel got on his bicycle, and he started to ride through the countryside. And then I'm going to pick up this story with the quote that I included on the front of your bulletin, if you happen to read it. It says, Nigel was riding over the turf, and here, here we go. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that, of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing, and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. See, Joseph Epstein, he recognizes this unfulfilled longing that is common to us all, but Tolkien, he recognized not only that unfulfilled longing, but he also recognized the hope of a day when all of that longing would finally and fully be revealed and realized, right? And this is, this is my argument. This is within all of us. We, we long for a perfectly healed, a put-right world, a put-right us, right? And we're often guessing at it, but we it seems out of our reach. Like we just can't quite capture it. The, the thorns and the thistles of the brokenness that's in us and around us, it just it chokes it out before it's ever realized. Well, I think Isaiah 61 is lifting us to see Niggle's countryside, right? Not a tree, but the tree, right? The hope of a day when all our deepest longings and hopes are met and realized. And though we can't mention everything in this chapter, I want you to see in Isaiah 61 the answers to the deepest longings of our hearts in these three points. The longing for true and full restoration, the longing for true and deep transformation, and the longing for true and perfect acceptance. So first, true and full restoration. The speaker in the first part of Isaiah 61, he's proclaiming all of these wonderful and great things that he's going to do and that he's going to accomplish. And the scope of this true and full restoration that he's talking about, it's just huge. I put it to you this way, that he's saying that he is going to come and he's going to deal with all of the brokenness in your life inside and outside, right? Internal and external, personal and circumstantial. I hope you see this. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, those oppressed and feeling the external uh, circumstantial brokenness of life, you know, pressing its jagged teeth in on them. But then also the internal and personal brokenness to bind up the brokenhearted, The opening of the prison to those who are bound, which is really talking about spiritual blindness and bondage. But even that's not enough. Because not only is he proclaiming to come and deal with the brokenness that's inside and outside of us, but brokenness that is individual 
and corporate in its dimensions. So verse 3, he's going to transform his people into oaks of righteousness, real, substantive, concrete expressions of righteousness, right? But it's not just individuals that are in view. By the time you get to verse 4, we're talking about ancient ruins and cities and generations. In verse 5, foreigners or strangers are going to be working hand-in-hand with you, he's saying. He's not talking about foreigners or strangers being somehow subservient to you. He's talking about working in unity and cooperation with one another. See, he's promising to redeem you, but also to redeem all of your relationships. Right? It's individual and it's communal or corporate. The scope of this restoration is huge. Right? And right there in the middle of all of this, in verse 2, we read that he will come and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's actually referring to something quite specific. He's referring to Leviticus chapter 25 and the year of Jubilee. And you read it on your own, but I'm going to give you a little background here. The Sabbath day. You've heard of that before. It's one day out of seven. And God has set it aside for his people to rest, to be replenished, to be refreshed. But the Sabbath year, that came around every seven years. And in that year, it was very special, because in that year, not only were people given this kind of weekly respite, but the land was given rest, right? And so all the servants and the sojourners within your gates, they were given rest, and people ate out of their storehouses for the entire year to give the land rest. But listen, every seven, seven years, or every 50th years, there was to be what was called the year of jubilee, the year of favor. And this was huge. Because not only were people, land, and animals given rest, but people who had lost all of their financial wealth and had to sell themselves into indentured servanthood, when this year came around, they were set free. But even beyond that, if you had somehow, through stupid decisions or difficult circumstances or whatever, you had lost your family's land, which in an agricultural society is a pretty big deal, right? In the 50th year, it would come back to you. I mean, people and families were going to be made whole, right? Restored, given a fresh start. But for all we know, Israel never practiced the year of Jubilee. But see, the one speaking in Isaiah 61 is saying, I'm going to bring that year in all its fullness. He's saying, in this year, I'm going to give you the world you always hoped for, always longed for, and always dreamed of. True restoration you've been wanting. He's going to bring the full restoration that's inside and out, that's individual and corporate. If, if you turn on the news uh, these days, I, I know you have, but you've seen all these stories of potential presidential candidates uh, jockeying for position, and they're giving you their ca- campaign platforms. They're telling you what they're for and what they're against, and if you're like me, you watch these things, and half the time you feel like crying because it's such a mess, and the other time you just feel like laughing because it's just it's comedic, right? And it's why 
Saturday Night Live makes a killing when, when these elections come around, right, with all their parodies and everything. But, but listen, Luke tells us, gospel writer Luke tells us that when Jesus launched his public ministry, he stood up and he read from the prophet Isaiah. And you know what he was doing when he stood up that first time to publicly read out of Isaiah? He was saying, this is who I am. This is what my campaign is all about, right? This is what I came to do. And from all the passages of Scripture he could have picked, he read Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And he was saying, that was me speaking in Isaiah 61. He's saying, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. I came to set the captives free. Right? He was saying, I came to bring the year of jubilee to you. The year of favor. He came. That's the promise that's out there before us. That he came to bring the true and full restoration our hearts are longing for. And the question for us this morning, I think, is not simply, do you understand that? Or do you see that? Or do you get that? But are you living in light of that? Because, see, if this is your hope, if this is your real hope, that this year of favor is coming, then, then listen, it puts all your struggles, it puts all your temptations, all your sorrows, all your regrets into perspective. You can endure, right? You, you can respond differently. You can say no to some things that you should say no to if you're living in light of that. You can sacrifice for others, in light of this, right? Like C.S. Lewis once said, you know, the Christians throughout history who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. So to live in the light of this hope of true and full restoration isn't to care less for this present world, but it gives you a dream. And it gives you a vision, right? That will lead you to striving for this now, true and final rest, full restoration. It, all the injustices righted, right? Suffering ended, pain healed, individuals made whole, and your relationships mended. So I'm asking you in this first point, are you living in light of the true and full restoration that has come? Second, I want us to think about the true and deep transformation that Isaiah 61 promises. I've mentioned this before in, in many different ways, but I try, I try to be very plain here. We are all longing in our lives, whether we admit it or, to anyone else or not, we are longing for the hope of true and deep change in our lives. Right? When, we're, I, I'm talk, when we're really honest with ourselves, I th- we'll admit that we want to be. We want to become something new and something different. And to be honest, many of us have grown cynical to the idea of change. And we've grown cynical to it not because we're not longing for it, but because all of the evidence around us in the lives of others and in our own lives really seems to suggest that the most we can hope for is some behavioral change. The most we can hope for is some change to our habits that's somewhat superficial or maybe even hypocritical. And that doesn't answer to the deepest longings of our hearts, 
to be and to become something new and something different from the inside out. Listen, twice in Isaiah 61, we're given agricultural metaphors of planting. It shows up in verse 3 and in verse 11. Verse 3 mentions how God will plant his people and they will be called oaks of righteousness. And then listen to verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Here's the picture. True and deep transformation. Not external, superficial change, but real, organic change. In a sermon on another passage, I heard the preacher Tim Keller um, use this illustration that I thought was very, very simple, but also very profound. Um, and it went something like this. He was saying, if you had a pile of bricks and you started adding bricks to that pile, brick after brick after brick, you could look at that pile and you could say that that pile is growing, right? But to stick with our metaphor in Isaiah 61, if you had a garden... And in that garden, you had sown tomato seeds and cucumber seeds and squash seeds and whatever else you grow in gardens, right? If you did that, you could come check your garden. And over time, you would see little plants break through the surface of the ground, sprout up, right? And they would grow and they would get bigger and eventually they would bud and eventually they would bear fruit or bear vegetables. I don't know. It it would be accurate to say... It would be accurate to say, right, that both the pile of bricks and the tomato plant are growing, right? But it's very different kinds of growth, right? One is mechanical growth, but the other is organic. One is external and superficial, but the other is growth from the inside out. Right, growth in complexity and unity and, and, and growth in quality and true and deep. Listen, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, I think he's a great example of someone who experienced both kinds of growth. Right? Martin was a monk, and as a monk, he was busy doing a whole lot of things, a whole lot of good things. He was, he was always in church. He was, he was performing a lot of the functions of the church, right? He was teaching, and he was preaching, and he was doing lots of good deeds, and he was helping others, and he was exercising. If you know his story, he was exercising a whole lot of discipline in his life. But it was all mechanical, and it was all superficial, and it was all external, and he was growing like a pile of bricks. But then he heard. Then he heard the good news of the gospel, and the gospel seed sunk deep into his heart. And it took root there. And he saw and he understood what Jesus came to do for him. And when that seed took root, he began to experience a whole different kind of growth. Organic, deep, and true transformation. And he started to grow in humility at the same time as he was growing in boldness. And he grew in joy and he grew in wisdom and gentleness and self-control. And he, and he was still doing good deeds. And he was still preaching and teaching and doing all the church stuff. But it was It was coming from an entirely different place. It was inside out, true and deep transformation. All of us have seen so much much mechanical, superficial, external growth that it makes total sense that we would have grown cynical 
to this idea of change and transformation. But Isaiah 61 is promising the hope of true and deep transformation for everyone who takes the gospel in as a seed. The inside out, right? True and deep, being and becoming that we long to experience. G. Campbell Morgan, he was an English preacher in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he once told this story about a time where he was visiting a cemetery, and, and there at that cemetery, there was this old grave of an extremely wealthy, important person. It had this huge marble, enormous marble, thick slab covering the top of the grave. But here's what made him remember and turn that into a story later on. Um, when he was at that gravesite, he noticed that years and years prior, an acorn had fallen into that grave. When the acorn finally made its way out the side of that thick marble slab, and years and years of growth and getting sunlight and water and all that kind of stuff, it grew and it grew and it got bigger and it got bigger. And eventually it was this huge tree in the middle of this cemetery. And over the years of true and deep, inside and out, organic growth, it had cracked this huge, thick marble slab into two pieces and rolled it off the grave. One tiny little seed, right? Tiny little seed. You could crush it in your hands. So small, so vulnerable. But when it went deep enough in, into the soil, when it got worked in, it released its power. And like Martin Luther and millions of others, if you take the gospel seed in and take it all the way deep into your heart, if and when that happens, it will grow with enough power to crack whatever hardness surrounds your heart and roll it off. The fruit that will blossom won't be mechanical and external, but true and deep. See, where the gospel seed goes, it produces humility and boldness and wisdom and kindness and patience and joy and forgiveness and love and peace and generosity. Are these kind of things happening in your life? That's evidence that you have taken the gospel seed in. So third and finally, I want us to consider true and perfect acceptance. Now, I need you to think with me about something up front here in this point. I need you to realize that much of our striving in life, much of our inability that we have to rest and our kind of anxious toiling about life, much of of our weary work with mechanical growth, piling brick after brick after brick in our lives, it stems from a very deep desire in our lives to matter, to know that we have worth, to prove to ourselves and to others that we're enough, that we're lovable. When you look at the whole of Isaiah 61, you realize that there are two speakers in Isaiah 61. The one in verses 1 through 9 who promises all of these great things that he's going to do to grow us into oaks of righteousness and bring the year of favor. And then in verse 10, there's another speaker. And it's someone who realizes 
that he's the beneficiary, that he's the recipient of everything this person is going to do and accomplish. And you can see how it's leading him forth to just bursting forth in praise. But now look at what he says in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, before we get to what that means, the robe of righteousness, I I want you to think with me for a second about the identities of these two speakers in Isaiah 61. All of the scholars recognize that when you get to verse 10 and 11, it's Isaiah writing. This is his signature on this passage. And it's a long time ago, but when we started this series a couple months ago in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was terrified. He was terrified because he found himself in front of a holy, holy, holy God. But poor Isaiah, he realized he was a man of unclean lips. He was broken. And even the best that a poet, a prophet had to offer, his lips He says, we're unclean, just a pile of bricks that did him no good. They were not enough to make him fit for God's presence, right? He saw himself as a walking dead man, if you remember that passage. But then this angel came with this burning coal to take him from the altar and touched his lips and cleansed him, and he went out to serve. All of a sudden, he was accepted before this holy, holy, holy God. And see, I think it's here in Isaiah 61 that all the pieces are coming together for Isaiah. How and why that coal taken from the altar made him truly and perfectly accepted. Give me two more minutes, right, and I'll pull this, all this together. The scholar Webb comments that the he of verse 1 is someone of quite extraordinary importance. And he's absolutely right. Because that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, if you cross-reference it, he's recalling both the anointed Messiah, the King of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and also the mysterious suffering servant of Isaiah 42, 1. And this is what Webb writes. This is what we must notice. These are one and the same person. The anointed Messiah, the righteous king, came as the suffering servant. Why? Why did he come to suffer? Why did he come to be wounded and crushed, as we're told in Isaiah chapter 53? He came to exchange places with Isaiah. He came that he would exchange places with you and me to suffer the death we deserved and instead to give us the robe of righteousness that only he deserved, to instead cover us with his robe, all his perfect obedience, instead is in fact a beautiful and very prominent word in Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Here's what he's saying. This king, who is also the suffering servant, he came and he took the ashes and he took the mourning 
and he took the faint spirit and the dishonor and the shame, and he gave you instead his beauty, the oil of gladness, the garment of praise that belonged to him, his robe of righteousness. You know, I mentioned this in the last point, that this gospel seed is really what needs to be planted in us in order to bear the fruit of transformation, true and deep. Martin Luther, same guy we talked about in the last point, tells us that the gospel seed took root in his heart when he was going through Romans chapter 1. And he got to that verse, verse 17, that reads this, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. What he realized was that in the gospel, we have been given a righteousness from God, a perfect, spotless righteousness with which to stand before him, that God had clothed him in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. He could finally stop piling brick after brick after brick and stop trying to prove that he was enough and cease the anxious toiling in his life and rest. And when he rested there in Jesus, true and deep fruit blossomed in his life. One of my favorite illustrations comes from an interview I saw a few years ago with the great NBA basketball player Bill Russell. Um, look him up on Wikipedia, children. Um, it's a good one. Um, but, I, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave it to you to seriously look at, it, look at him in Wikipedia and find out all of his accomplishments on and off the basketball court. But in 2011, Bill Russell was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian award that can be given. And in this interview, Russell was, he was glowing, he was beaming. It was, it was obvious that the, it just meant so much to him to be able to receive this award. And so the interviewer, you know, leaned in for what I'm sure he thought was a very easy question. So he leaned in and he says, is this the greatest honor of your life compared even with all your other awards? And so I, I wrote down what he said. I had to pause it a bunch of times in TiVo. But um, he, this is what he said. No. It's a close second, though. And then he said this. He was about 75 or 76 when my father said to me one day, you know, I'm proud of you. And I'm proud that you're my son. And I'm also just as proud that I'm your father. And Bill Russell ended that quote by saying, and you cannot top that. And that's powerful. All those accomplishments... All those awards, all those honors he had received, all the fame, all the success. But to know that in his father's eyes, he was enough. That he wasn't just lovable, but that he was loved. To know that my father, he was saying, is beaming in pride and delight over me. To have that kind of assurance in my life, you cannot top that. I love that story. There's another father-son story I love, too. <laughs> Just before Jesus launched, it, launched his public ministry and gave his campaign speech, right, 
He was in the Jordan River being baptized by John. If you remember that scene, spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven echoed out and said, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That little scene, it's a beautiful scene, because there Jesus is. He is basking in the approval and the love and the delight of his father. His father was beaming in pride over him. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Here's the crazy truth that seems almost too good to be true, but is true. Jesus came to take all your ashes, to take all your mourning, to take all your dishonor, all your shame, and instead to cover you with the robes of his righteousness. Why? So that you can be sure that if you are trusting in him, Right now, at this very moment, the king of the universe is absolutely beaming in pride and delight over you. You are the son, the daughter he loves, with whom he is well pleased. And you cannot top that. Listen, you take that gospel seed in, And you'll finally be able to rest. And true and perfect acceptance. Listen, take that seed all the way in and it will begin to transform you. Take that seed in and you have the deposit. The first fruit of the true and full restoration that one day, someday, Jesus is going to bring in its entirety and in its fullness. Last little thing. When Jesus read Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, he stopped reading right in the middle of that sentence in verse 2. He ended with proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and he didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. One day, someday, out in the future, we don't know when, there will be a sudden and quick day of his vengeance and his justice But here's what Jesus was saying. Seize the year. Seize the year of Jubilee, the year of his favor. Come into this good news now. Now, not tomorrow, is the time to come to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we marvel at the good news of the gospel We stand in wonder that the good news and the good words, the benediction that you pronounced over your Son, that those good words could belong to us. We marvel that He took our ashes to give us the robe of His righteousness. And Father, we pray that you would help us to believe it. Because to be quite honest, it does sometimes seem too good to be true. But it is true. We pray that you'll help us believe it. And we pray that that gospel seed would go deep into our hearts, that it would transform and change us, that we would see that it is indeed a deposit guaranteeing the true and full restoration that is yet to come in Jesus.
It's in his name we pray. Amen.